Now, why this uh, heedless and unceasing march through unknown authors to find nuggets of garage rock truth for the present day? We spent time in the podcast with James Gould Cousins, whose non-politically correct musings and his highly um, diagnostic uh, listenings in to the human conversation that occurs inside an individual, but which is so often masked and unstated and out of fear or insecurity, is simply not allowed to be heard by the rest of the world. Why do his books have so much to say to us? Because they understand what goes on inside people and that you can't just tell people what to think and what not to think and expect them not to think it because the brain and the instinctual life of the heart and the body goes on whether we are told this, that and the other thing. And Cousins uh, alerts us to some of the deeper innuendos and impressions and uh, arguments that relationships involve, especially male-female relationships, that might not be able to be stated today and yet actually happen. And so his works uh, have an explosive uh, ability to, to, to get into what's really going on, but we're really not talking about. Or, or um, Irvin S. Cobb, who wrote about uh, small southern towns in the post-Reconstruction era when racial and class uh, divisions were rigidified uh, and legalized. And uh, uh, you have this politically incorrect landscape times 100, as he describes, as it was, I might add, the town of Fairfield, Kentucky, in 1880 and 1890. But somehow, in the middle of all this, this author, Irvin S. Cobb, is able to state the gospel, the Christian message of unconditional love. That is to say, really, not pseudo, but unconditional love for sinners, uh, for troubled, wayward, awful people who are touched to the max by Judge William Pittman Priest's um, uncanny love that restores broken and criminal people through a uh, Christian experience, and in this case it's bona fide and explicit Christian experience, that we would otherwise not read in a million years because the picture of American life is so, uh, we, we are so averse to it, and yet it was the way it was. But that's not what's important about Cobb. Cobb lifts up the Christian gospel in a way that is radical and shocking and non-judgmental, but actually so, not just the words. And the same goes for Mark Connolly, the McKeesport PA Episcopalian agnostic, who comes in his um, play from the late 20s, The Green Pastures, to understand as brilliantly as uh, Fran Leibovitz does in her new HBO um, documentary, Public Speaking, when she talks about the difference between her ethnic religion and Christianity and the fact that Christianity is forgiveness and she doesn't like it. She's not about to say she believes in revenge and she says it in a very funny and delightful um, comic manner, but she 
in doing so, she says, but Jesus is not about revenge. Uh, uh, this is why I have such a hard time with it. Jesus is about forgiveness. And here Mark Connolly comes up with this picture of the forgiving change in the heart of God, which we call the Christians, at least call the New Testament. But you, you can't present it. You can't see it. It's only shown on Martin Luther King Day on TCM. And even then it's spoken with all sorts of caveats. And you have to see all these uh, statements before you can even watch the video of the, uh, the Green Pastures because it's uh, considered... A blackface. No, it's really not. It's not fair to say that Connolly's scheme of 1910, a plantation African-American uh, people uh, uh, incarnating the stories of the Bible, Old and New Testament, it, it, that that is somehow prejudicial because it is. there's not a white character in it. And secondly, it is such a powerful resonance with something bigger, such a, such a reference point to um, in Christ there is no East and West and neither do I forgive thee, woman. Neither, neither do I condemn the woman. Uh, go and sin no more. There is such a powerful picture of God's catching up in that wonderful scene with Hezrael and the Lord when the Lord admits that he's, he's been caught short by mercy. He's surprised by mercy. He's been back in the hills so long that he's, he didn't even know himself. And he's so surprised when he finds the, the, uh, the, the black leader, military leader, Hezrael, is praying to Hosea is God, the God of mercy, and God himself is shocked by what he finds out is true about himself that he didn't even know. And then we have the remarkable burden that Christ carries up the hill as the angel Gabriel tells the Lord what is happening back on Good Friday. And, and yet we can't see it. You can't even uh, see it without it being hedged about. You couldn't put it on anymore for fear that you would be uh, offend offensive, and yet there it is. Now, why do these uh, authors have something to say to us? They, in their day, struck resonances which are far and long gone. The, 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 the world in which Mark Connolly was writing and the world in which Irvin S. Cobb was writing and the world um, uh, in uh, which James Gould Cousins has vanished, and, and so there's no resonance uh, and no one wants to hear, but other things that they that they had, other jewels that they had, we have no ears to hear. We we are completely under the under the waves. We are underwater, and so we uh, receive messages uh, which are the sort of as the Germans call it the Kehrseite, the underside of a lot of thinking that goes on today. Is other thinking that we can't talk about, and these these authors have their dog whistles. And they get us to hear things that we cannot hear. And so they have something to say. Now, today I want to talk a little bit more about Philip Wiley, who is a very interesting case of a highly unfashionable author who, um, by his very unfashionability, is worth listening to because there are certain things he is saying that are the underside of other things and that will uh, rise up again. Because fashion, it's not about a thing I'm talking about. It's not about a left wing or a right wing. It's not about a, a this side or that side of an argument. It's not about secularism or Christianity. It's not about um, <clears throat> the, the, the politics of this or that with smoking or uh, anything you want to name it. Uh, it's not about Representative Wiener. It's not about the thing itself. It's about the fact that fashions change. It's about that the thing is always changing. And so to get the whole truth 
you have to often sort of get out of the fashion today to allow the fashion to be balanced by another fashion, which in its day was more powerful than, uh, just as powerful as the current fashion is. And then you get a little bit of the whole truth. And Philip Wiley, because he was a prophetic, angry, impossible sort of a writer, uh, yet was in touch almost by the very fact that he was an againer. He's what, you know, an againer is someone who's against everything by definition. In other words, if he's with liberals, he becomes a conservative. If she's with um, conservatives, she becomes a liberal. You, you are, you, you, because you are angry about everything all the time, it involves you, not, not ideas, you, your uh, ideologies switch all the time uh, because it's really about you. And uh, uh, Wiley was uh, in tremendous... Uh, um, uh, he was an antagonism and rancor against the culture of the 1940s and 50s in which he was writing. And for that very reason, he brought out certain things that today are, are strikingly interesting. He was a nonconformist then, and, uh, and yet he touched certain things at the same time. And some of the things that worked for him in 1940 and 1950 uh, did not work in the 60s and 70s when they were, um, they were uh, emeritized. They were made emeritus. They were uh, put on permanent retirement. And yet now they speak strikingly. Now, he was the son, as I think I've mentioned, mentioned of a liberal Presbyterian minister, the kind of Presbyterian minister who was not at Westminster Theological Seminary, but was at Princeton, the kind who was in favor of evolution, the kind who was what we would call today a theological liberal at every single hold. And so Wiley, who himself was very, very liberal, he's not in reaction against Christianity, which he was, uh, because his father was this kind of Christian or that. He's in reaction uh, to the authority. He's in reaction against his father, qua father, not his father, qua conservative or liberal. A lot of times people are in reaction, they think ideologically to a certain thing. Wiley was just in reaction. <laughs> and and, uh, and yet he, uh, because he had this uh, kind of um, sensitivity based on his extreme reactivity, based on his particular reaction to his child, and he talks about it a lot, he sought therapy. And very early in those days, in the 1930s and 40s, um, sort of waspy, preppy Princeton people uh, did not go into psychoanalysis. It was a rare bird who did. And <clears throat> this fellow, who was sort of a combination of George Plimpton and... Uh, William Buckley Jr., you know, hi, I'm from, you know, I'm from Montclair. I mean, in the days when Montclair represented something, uh, he, um, uh, Wiley, uh, was psychoanalyzed. And he then, for a second season, he went to Zurich and was analyzed by Carl Gustav Jung. He became a Jungian from Jung. So you have a man who was analyzed twice. It was this sort of preppy, reactive Presbyterian wasp who then gets psychoanalyzed. And because he has some terrible problems with women early on, particularly a marriage that he scuttled himself by his own admission by virtue of his drinking, he marries again after 10 years or whatever it was of his first marriage, which ended in divorce, and he marries someone he loves. And uh, he stops drinking, sort of a dry drunk, you might say, and he, he saved. And he then uh, ruminates because of his marital history with women and a happy marriage. He's able to think about men and women. He's able to think very personally about the self because of his psychoanalysis, which has kind of dislodged a lot of his ideological things. And he has something to say about Christianity because instead of being simply absolutely against, I mean, he wrote Generation of Vipers, which was published in 1942, which includes an astonishing last chapter 
entitled called the man entitled the man on the cross and there Wiley says some very negative things about Christianity in fact he says some negative things about Jesus Christ himself and so for the sort of garden variety Christian left right or center uh, you're not going to like that chapter because it appears to be extremely hostile to the Christian church but read it again because what he's really trying to do he's trying to rehabilitate Jesus as over against the church. Now, this is a very familiar strategy. It's been done by Isaac Dennison, and it's been done by uh, half the writers you can name. Um, I'm looking at uh, 50 different writers right here in my library who tried to, said they weren't Christians, but were not opposed to Jesus. I mean, Tolstoy is a great example of one. Uh, obviously, Victor Hugo, who refused to be buried with any priest present, you know, by his own absolutely adamant condition and codicil, as did Tolstoy himself, you know. These men were alienated explicitly from the church, but they were total fans when it came to Jesus. Well, um, as you'll see, uh, Wiley's uh, attachment to Jesus is highly politically interesting, and we're going to talk about that. Now, I've tried to say why it is that these unknown authors can speak to us today when they're completely out of fashion. No one reads these guys. No one reads Philip Wiley today. Absolutely zilch. You can't find his books. You have to go to online to get his old editions or go to uh, secondhand bookstores, which are 500 miles apart. I've been able to procure them primarily because of Reed Books, that wonderful museum of fond memories that Jim Reed runs in Birmingham, which I recommend. Run, do not walk to Reed Books in Birmingham. He's got Wiley. And uh, I was in a place in Denver a few weeks ago in Westside of Denver where they had Wiley and I got Wiley and I got it but uh, you're not going to find these um, sort of pulpy paperbacks that, that alternate between science fiction like When Worlds Collide or Triumph about nuclear holocaust or um, The Spy Who Spoke Porpoise which is one of his very great ones or the, the one he wrote about uh, LA and ecology I mean he was a remarkably prescient person um, or The Disappearance which I've talked about about men and women but um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of his unfashionable profundities, why he is an unknown author who needs to be known. And I want to conclude with something really quite, uh, that moves me actually, and it has to do a little bit with current news. Now, um, typical of, uh, of Wiley uh, and, and most uh, uh, controversial is the... Um, his, his views on, on sex and women. He was thought to be a misogynist because of a chapter on what he later called momism, which was a, sounded and was derogatory to a certain kind of what we today call a hovering or helicopter mom. And that person existed in the 40s, and he has a very strong chapter, which let's forgive him for. I mean, if you're a female and you read it, you're, you, you're going to just absolutely close the book. And um, today it's unreadable. And I'm not going to say anybody should read it. I've read it because I wanted to know what it was in it, the whole book. But um, I don't propose to make any kind of defense for, uh, especially as a man, for Wiley's musings on uh, on what he thinks women are guilty of or not guilty of. He loved women, actually, and he, he wrote in, as you know, when you read The Disappearance, they, they, they win the war, you know. The, the women win the vote. I mean, they become colossally depressed without the men. But as far as uh, humane values and life-affirming and uh, hope and nonviolent uh, uh, reconciliation with the other, the women clean up as over against the men uh, who murder one another in the disappearance. So he really wasn't a misogynist. He, he, he spoke 
uh, he, I'm sure his wife wished he hadn't written it, uh, that particular chapter. Uh, but in context, uh, it, it, I, he's not, but the chapter, I'm not making any brief for it. I will say that his views on sexuality in general and the uh, experience of human sexuality are very um, unusual for his period. Now, here's a passage in his book that I regard highly called Opus 21. It was the run-up to the disappearance, and I believe this is a first edition. I believe it was published in 1949. And in it, a, um, a writer, Sue's Philip Wiley, is holed up in a relatively high-end hotel in New York City after he's just found out that he very likely, although not for sure, but very likely has, is suffering from throat cancer. And he's dealing with his very real possibility of a terminal illness here. Um, and he's trying to bring it on board. And his wife is not, is not there, is, doing, is uh, working somewhere else. And he is um, alone in the hotel. And he strikes up a relationship that is actually very um, platonic. I mean, that is, he, he behaves himself thoroughly throughout the book, even though his, in theory he shouldn't, but in practice he does, which is, says something right there. But Wiley is talking to... Um, to he's trying to, to he's talking to a woman named Devon who's having terrible troubles with her uh, estranged husband back in San Francisco, but uh, here he's gone off to try to sort of save a, a nephew who has women problems, according to this book, and he's talking to the uh, a kind of uh, high end madam, uh, Upper East Side or Upper West Side actually, madam in New York City, and they have a very interesting discussion about sex and law. And in it, uh, she, the madam, uh, says, uh, um, this is page 118, what do I really do here then? She's talking to Philip Wiley. Ask yourself, I'm in the business of supplying erotic fun to people who are made for it, born to it, urged from the cradle to the grave to take part in it, who depend on it for mental health, for a decent feeling of goodwill toward others, and aren't allowed to engage in it. And um, she says the restraint of desire, he means sexual desire, by the demeaning of it has unstrung nearly all of us. And it brings people to our repetitive, obnoxious dooms. Quite suddenly, I felt like weeping. Now, that's a typical Wiley statement that uh, basically uh, we live, whether we live in a uh, Christian, Protestant kind of governed by the law sort of premarital sex, a censorious, pharisaical, self-righteous Christian norms about um, sex, which we really don't, don't, don't live under now in any actual sense. They may be inherited, uh, but compared to what Wiley was talking about from the 1930s um, in the Presbyterian Church or wherever this woman is talking about, we don't live there. But now we have other kinds of demeaning norms. I mean, sex is always going to be politicized, and it's going to be politicized by the left, or it's going to be politicized by the right, it's going to be politicized by men to dominate women, or it's going to be politicized by women to, to, to dominate men. I mean, uh, power uh, corrupts always, not just one way, not just on the right, not just on the left, but all directions. And so uh, this great line where she, she's, she's just trying to talk, what's really true? People are born to sex. They're made for sex. They're urged by their bodies from the cradle to the grave to take part in sex. They depend on sex for mental health, for a decent feeling of goodwill towards others. I mean, isn't that true? When, when, you're, when you're at peace on that department, your, your mental health is better, you sleep better, you're, you're nicer, you're not angry, you're not grumpy, you're not displacing. 
Um, It's just painfully right, and yet we're not allowed to engage in it, whether it's from the left or from the right. That's typical Wiley. Now, let me uh, continue uh, along the way. Um, He says um, on page 124, he's reflecting on what she has said, and he's reflecting actually on Fulton Sheen and Reinhold Niebuhr, who he regards as the enemy. Now, don't worry about that. That's just... That's just Wiley. It's typical. He, he, he's, he regards the Protestant figure and the Catholic figure as the enemy. But then he says, uh, what we have here is our failure to perceive our instinctual nature. It's my elected department in the category of doom. That is why, at bottom, he writes, no one is happy in modern society. Well, what he's talking about there is we have a failure to perceive our instinctual nature. He wants to say that people think that they are much more rational than they are. They think that they are much more uh, under, uh, you know, able to control their lives. They think that they are much more reasonable. And you know, why can't people do what what uh, what they tell themselves to do? Why can't they do what's good for them? Why can't they make wise and smart decisions? And he says the problem is our failure to perceive our instinctual nature. Well, I think that is absolutely correct. Um, we do not perceive the fact that we are creatures of instinct, heart, feeling, rather than uh, self-control and rational decision-making. And this is why everyone's always surprised by what people do. You're surprised what you do. I'm surprised by what I do. I'm shocked by some of the thoughts that I have. I'm, I'm amazed at some of the things that cross my mind on any given day since I was a baby till today, more than ever. And um, because I don't want to know that I'm in the grip of forces that are bigger than my controlling them, uh, my ability to control them is, but they are bigger. And so he's saying whether you want to believe this or not, whether you think it ought to be true or not, you're, you're failing to perceive your instinctual nature, and therefore you're um, not happy in modern society. Well, that's, uh, that's typical of, uh, of Wiley. Now, one more a classic statement he makes that is just typical Wiley. It's so obvious. I, I sent this statement to some people I know who are very, very trustworthy, in my opinion, and very practiced and experienced at, uh, in, in, in ministry, as it turns out, in actual, with people, you know, uh, that th- th- we say caregivers, well, clergy who really are in the parish, who actually are doing the work of parish ministry of any denomination, you, you want to say, any, almost any religion, people who are the professional clerics, if they're at all doing what you have to do to, to have that life and get paid some kind of modest salary to do it and support your family, you're with people all the time. You, you, you have to be gregarious. You are with, you're an extroverted person, whether you really are or not, you have to be, you learn about people and how they act, especially in hospitals. You learn about them. And uh, the, um, the, the power of, of that, I sent some of these quotes to uh, these two very um, thoughtful, uh, experienced uh, parish uh, ministers. And they said, well, these are unarguable statements. I mean, whether I agree with them or not, whether I wish they would be true or not, whether I, I, I you know, sort of my heart sinks to read them, it's simply true based on my life as a caregiver 24-7 for 35 years. And this is something he says. At the end of the book, he, the, he's been trying to help this estranged woman estranged from her husband to sort of find out where she was wrong in the marriage. A problem arose in the marriage that was psychosexual, and uh, she immediately assumed it was not her problem and fled the fella. And uh, she's now beginning to see that it, it wasn't... Uh, it's always takes two to tango, that it wasn't just his problem, that it was also her problem. 
And so um, uh, the tables are turned in a way because the voice of uh, sexual uh, understanding or sexual perception, which was Wiley's voice, has now switched over to Yvonne, the woman who's on her way to get a taxi to go to LaGuardia so she can fly back to San Francisco and try to patch things up with her strange husband because she sees things differently. And listen to this. Um, he, Wiley, says to her in the little bar before she goes, and by the way, he's behaved himself absolutely chastely with her, although he's given her a lot to think about. Still, he says to Yvonne, still, there are other things in life besides sex. Yvonne counters, not if sex isn't right, there aren't, not any other things worth living for. Well, you know, you read that, that's accurate from my perspective. We all want to say there are other things in life besides sex. I mean, haven't people said that to you a million times? You know, usually when they say that, they mean there are other things in life besides sex. That usually means there's nothing. <laughs> They're usually saying sex is not important at all. Uh, but, but, but that's usually a special pleading. There are other things in life besides sex. Um, what uh, he's, he's trying to argue the other point. And But she now says, having come to herself, not if sex isn't right, there aren't. Not any other things worth living for. What she is saying is when the sexual relationship, male or female, however you want to actually characterize it or envisage it, is wrong, when you're out of sorts in terms of your sexuality, male, female, whatever it is that you understand to be, it is so core because it's, you know, for all the different natural reasons of reproduction and evolution and whatever you want to, words you want to use, it is so core that if something in your sexual experience isn't right, then you get focused on that. That, that. that is the obstacle. Now, when that is, is taken, is right, however that you want to define that, when sex is right in your life, is it's being experienced correctly or right or aptly or truly or with, with the, the kind of resilient human honesty that everyone has, then everything else, other things do become worth living for. I've always wondered why men who ran away from their wives uh, with had children for another woman, the arms of another woman over the years, and I've seen it happen countless times, um, why they didn't really seem to be in, want to be in touch with the kids. They constantly used to hear, well, you know, my father left the house when I was four, and I basically haven't seen him since, and I don't want to see him. To tell you the truth, or you know, Bill left uh, left us when the children were you know nine, ten, and twelve, and uh, uh, he he I've been so disappointed that he doesn't really he doesn't really seem to care what happens to them. He's not at all involved with their lives. Now I know there are many exceptions, and you'll be saying, well, I know this exception, and I know that, and there are of course many exceptions. But what I'm interested in is why did that happen? Why did the father who left the house seem to lose complete interest in the children? Well, the reason is because he lost complete interest in their mother. And the only way he could, the rejection of the mother involved a rejection of the children. Had he been okay with the mother, the children would have been all right with him. Uh, that sounds terrible, but that's the way it actually functions. If you, if you can't stand, quote, the woman you, you left for this other person over here, for all sorts of reasons, you, you, you put her in a negative light and then the children fall into that light. It's very hard for the children to exist independently of their mother if you have negative, negative feelings. So you see, if the sexual relationship had been right, then other things would be worth living for. But if the sexual relationship isn't right, then other things, which are very, very important, cease to be worth living for from the standpoint of the person for whom sex wasn't right. Now, that is a statement of, of tremendous wisdom. 
and uh, it, you you you, dis- you you miss that at your own peril. You, 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 if you think that's wrong, what he's saying, I'm not going to challenge you, but y- y- your life will catch up with you. I've seen it countless times where people who would have said sex isn't everything, who that was a, a, a kind of a cover for the fact that sort of sex isn't anything, and then they were terribly wounded and hurt when the husband, or in some cases the wife, acted out in such a way that they shouldn't have. I mean, they oughtn't to have. I don't. They, they, that's just not what they ought to be, be doing. That, that doesn't fit my idea of what they should have been doing, but they did. So still, he says, there are other things in life besides sex. Not if sex isn't right, she says, there aren't. Not any other things worth living for. That's page 251 of the uh, uh, Opus 21. Now, I want to end by bringing this all into another perspective. Um, Wiley's odd focus on honest, authentic love between the sexes walks in parallel in his oeuvre with a highly humanistic form of political or uh, uh, international pacifism. He was not a pacifist, but he wrote a number of stories that are overwhelmingly pacifist in mood and intention and in denouement and in, in structure. And in theme, one of them is 1955, his book The Answer, about uh, some nuclear testing that is going on competitively between Russia uh, and America, and uh, both Russia and America simultaneously uh, explode atom bombs that um, uh, kill inadvertently two heavenly angels. And the angels, one on the American side and the other on the Russian side, are shot down by nuclear testing explosions. And uh, the Americans, we don't see what happens to the Russians, the Americans have to come, well, we think we do a little bit, but the Americans have to understand, what was this angel trying to say? Is it an angel? Well, it turns out, this being a very imaginative story, and Wiley had a great imagination. He, many people would say his best work is a science fiction because he, he, all sorts of stories that are now absolutely normal, like people having atom bombs and using them, dirty bombs against other countries as acts of terrorism. He was the first person to ever talk about an atom bomb being used by a rogue nation to uh, blackmail the world. And uh, um, there are many, uh, and he was the first person to write about ecology and the death of Los Angeles because of smog. I mean, he, he was brilliantly imaginative. Um, and uh, in uh, the story, The Answer, 1955, which you can get, uh, but you'll have to get it at one of the, on Amazon, I mean on uh, eBay, um, he brings in a religious theme, and ultimately the message of the angel is there to uh, bring to an end atomic testing. Now, um, uh, most extraordinary of his short stories on this question is a short story that has no title that he sticks into. Uh, it's actually uh, chapter eight of the section, section eight of the section called Rondo in Opus 25, uh, 21. And it begins on page 312. And this is what happens. Uh, we are on the B-29 bomber carrying the atom bomb from any Waytok Atoll in the Pacific to the city of Hiroshima, where it is going to be dropped, and all these thousands and thousands and thousands of people are going to be killed. 
and the colonel on the plane. It is the Enola Gay, and uh, they're all very. It's a very very serious moment, and they've been dispatched with the final okay from the White House, and they're on their way. And the colonel who's running the mission, the pilot, um, crawls back through the fuselage, uh, looking down on the kind of on the garage shaped housing which houses the atom bomb in the belly or what he calls the uterus of the plane, and he crawls over it through the fuselage to check on how things are going back in the bombardier station. And in the bombardier station, there are some highly trained uh, Air Force bombardiers and a physicist who's there to um, make sure everything is right. And it's uh, the great moment. It is the, just before the birth of the atomic age and the destruction of Hiroshima by the atom bomb being carried by the Enola Gay. And when he comes out of the fuselage towards the little tiny room in the bomber where the bombardiers are very checking everything, he notices there's another person there. Now, this other fella looks like all the others, and he's dressed in uh, in the sort of overalls of the United States Air Force. You know, he's he's dressed for action like all of them are. This is, a, this is the most serious mission in the world, and they're all there, and he sees this other fella, and he immediately is just, he's, it's a stowaway. Of course, all his alarm bells go off, but then he says to himself, oh, no, this must have, Harry Truman must have sent somebody at the last minute to just make sure that everything was above board. This guy's obviously a civilian White House uh, kind of plant uh, to make sure, you know, like a commissar. I mean, he's the White House guy, a good guy, to make sure that nothing happens that shouldn't happen and to, to just make sure that this is under the direct control of the commander-in-chief of the United States Armed Forces. And he sees this fellow and he reasons himself, oh, well, then it's probably okay, but how the heck did he get in here? So he goes up to him and he says, who the hell are you? Who the heck are you? And the fellow says, uh, um, you'll want to go over my papers, perhaps, my orders? And the colonel says, yeah, White House staff? The man shrugs. Well, pretty high up, I'll admit. And he begins unbuttoning his coveralls. And um, the colonel felt relieved, page 320. Major Waite's discussion of flight plans, his haranguing in the briefing rooms, sometimes left the colonel a little chilled, emptied out. Obviously, this man knew the major. He wasn't, fantastically, impossibly, an agent of the enemy. Now the colonel gestured towards the bomb bay, the radioactive uterus of the plane. You helped put it together? The man seemed to grow pale. His smile disappeared. No. Then what? In God's name, what? I am here, the man said, in so low a tone his voice scarcely carried through the pulsing air, because I promised. Promised? Promised who? When? Because I said it. Lo, I shall be with you always, even unto the end of the world. The colonel stared and remembered. He turned the color of ashes. His right hand, ungoverned, made upon brow, shoulders, and chest the sign of the cross. His knees bent tremblingly. Before he could genuflect, the man touched his arm. Don't, Colonel. Well, Jesus is on the plane. Jesus has stowed away on the plane, and he is there to abort the mission. The Colonel, who's obviously a Catholic, says, uh, My Lord, the Colonel all but whispered, What shall we do? Return to base. The soldier's eyes faltered. Abort the mission? I hoped I might persuade you. Another would merely follow. And them. But duty. 
To whom is duty? Oh, I mean, what you want to say when you read this, I mean, I'm moved as I read it. Jesus Christ, how did he do this? And um, then they say, uh, um, he says, uh, uh, somebody, uh, then they have this discussion. Well, we're doing this to save lives. You know, the old thing. We're doing it to save American lives. Don't you understand? We're using it to shorten lives, save lives. And then he says, save lives? Well, um, it's extraordinary, this imagination of Philip Wiley, that in 1949, actually I'm sure he wrote the book in 1948, he's put Jesus on the Enola Gay. Now, I'm not going to tell you what happens, because, I mean, obviously, you all know that the, the Enola Gay reached its target and dropped the bomb. I mean, all we all know that, but what an action. Now, what I want to say about this, I'm finishing up, what I want to say about this extraordinary author is that this is the... Um, this is the absolute essence of, uh, of what uh, the um, unknown author can make known to us. It's something that we haven't thought about. I've told you about the other side of Wiley, but the great side of Wiley is this side of Wiley, and you'll see it again and again in his fiction. He is the prophet who says something that no one else can say. In 1949, he has Christ telling the people, abort the mission. Now, was anyone saying that in 1949? And let me give you another example of this. Today, we have just seen Osama bin Laden killed by a Navy SEAL team. Now, no one seems to know exactly what happened or has told us exactly what happened, and I'm sure there's a video, and I'm sure we'll be able to see the whole thing at some point, but probably not anytime soon, because it became very clear that whatever you think about that, and whatever happened actually there, when he was shot, he was an unarmed man. In other words, he did not have a weapon. He was not pulling. They've said it. It's been stated that he was an unarmed man. Now, what is extraordinary to me is why the Christian community, I'm just talking about the Christian community. I'm not talking about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the White House. I'm talking about the Christian community. I've heard a few Christian people, like there are a number of people who said, well, we shouldn't gloat. You know, no Christian, again, I'm speaking here as a Christian, no Christian should gloat over the loss of a life, no matter how terrible. We shouldn't be in a position of glee over the death of Osama bin Laden. We should be in a position of kind of somber, sober, sober sobriety and, and kind of tragic understanding and, and, and modest hope about the future. But that's not, but that, that's not what I'm talking about. How could the Christian community not question, at least among ourselves, how do we, how do we justify shooting an unarmed man. I mean, since when did people in this country believe that uh, that was justified? What, what is the whole, you, you, you capture a man if he's unarmed. If he's not and he shoots back, you shoot. But if, if he's not, you capture him. You do anything to capture him. People say, well, you know, not one more American life should be in jeopardy after the guy who caused 9-11. I disagree. I mean, of course I disagree with that. You know, at one level, of course I agree with that. But what is it all about to be an American? I mean, it's to, to defend certain fundamental rights like the right of a – we don't shoot people who are unarmed, who we want to apprehend without giving them a trial. I mean the whole point is you capture the man. You try him, and when found guilty, if he is found guilty for his crimes, he is liable to be punished to the maximum extent of the law. 
you punish him to the maximum extent of the law. Not beyond, but if you believe in capital punishment, there it is. You punish him to the maximum extent of the law, whatever you do. He pays uh, that price after a trial. But since when do we, do we not question? I'm simply saying, when, when do we not question the uh, situation where you kill an unarmed man and somehow think that that's in accordance with your deepest values? How can the Christian community say that? Now, the same would be true of, uh, you know, I mean, w- w- I, I like to think, what if, what if uh, Jesus had been a stowaway on one of those Navy SEAL helicopters? He probably would have been on the one that crashed. Uh, but, but what about Jesus being in, what about a story there? Or what about the drones? Now, you've heard me speak about drones. Not everyone agrees with me. And matter of fact, 90% of people don't agree with what I say about drones. But uh, that's all right. I can live with that. Uh, but Jesus is on a drone right now. You know, that drone that kill, you know, yes, one day they kill a guy who we should have captured. We, 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 we have a targeted assassination from the air. All right. Uh, the next day we kill 114 wedding guests, you know, thinking that that's where somebody else we want to get is. Or 35, uh, you know, children or 35 uh, ancillary uh, people with their goats, you know. Uh, Jesus is on that drone. What if, we, what if we put Jesus out at that Air Force base near Las Vegas and had him have a little discussion? in one of those uh, rooms with the sort of high-stakes uh, video games going on. Uh, uh, what about Jesus on the, uh, in the room where they uh, uh, made the military decision, don't question the military on the ground, they know what they're doing type of thing, uh, in which we shoot, yes, a terrible, terrible criminal who should be tried to the maximum extent of the law, but we don't, do, do, what if he'd been there shooting him unarmed? When we could have captured him, you know, you can say all you want. That's what we did. Um, but I'm not questioning the president or the secretary of the defense. I'm talking about the Christian community here. Why is no one asking the question? What about the drones? Now, Wiley was asking the question, and this is why the power of a writer like Philip Wiley is so um, important for us. Yes, the man was a kind of preppy, odd, out-of-control Jungian freak who uh, half of what he said uh, is impossible to read, by the way. The style is so, it's like, it's like, it's better than Lloyd C. Douglas, but not that much. When Wiley is good, and he writes very well in Generation of Vipers, and he writes very well in The Disappearance, you can read it, but Opus 21, I mean, gee whiz, or Night Unto Night, which I've just read from 1942, 44, which is a very good book and was made into a movie with, uh, with uh, Ronald Reagan, good movie, that um, you can't read it. But even if you could read it, a lot of, you know, yes, you can say, well, he has some very strong statements about women that a man cannot make. I mean, he, a man cannot say the things about women and be expect to be taken seriously or listened to by women who make some of the statements he does. No wonder he got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters who, of people declaring he was a misogynist. You know, uh, there are things that he said that he shouldn't have said, and I'm not defending them. I am struck by his extraordinary insight, probably rooted in his own history and psychoanalysis, into the central core significance of sex and sexual questions for human development. And this is an area where Christianity is extremely weak and always has been weak and needs to really find healing and find a a resurrection of understanding about how this instinctual life of human beings actually functions and then apply a little bit of its vaunted forgiveness and vaunted grace to an area where it seems almost impossible to say, neither do I condemn you. 
At the same time, where is the community of people who claim to be uh, those who turn uh, plowshares into uh, swords into plowshares and uh, spears into pruning hooks? Where is the world that uh, claims that that is the work of God finally for world reconciliation, peace, and hope? Where is that world today? Well, it's not speaking up. It didn't say a word about Osama bin Laden. I I'm sure there were some Quakers who said it, but I, uh, they didn't get uh, maybe some people in England said it or France or Germany, but I didn't hear it here. And the same goes with the drones. Bishop Bell, where are you? And finally, here he puts Jesus of Nazareth on the Enola Gay, dressed in his U.S. Army Air Force fatigues, and yet giving them one message, abort the mission, return to base. And because, why are you here? I told you, I promised, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. I mean, it moves me. I mean, I'm, right now I, I'm broken up about this extraordinary vision of bringing together things that no one's bringing together today. Who is bringing together the message of Christ about peace and the extraordinary obtuseness and total iron lead screen of what we believe today is somehow normal and somehow good? Well, God bless Philip Wiley, wherever you are, God bless uh, wonderful, uh, prophetic, uh, edgy, imperfect Philip Wiley. Thank you very much for this further uh, little musing on another author who is known and yet unknown. Thank you so much. God bless.